Everybody in your crew identifies as either Big Mac Burger, McNuggets, or McCrispy Sandwich. But you're the filet fish Sandwich all day. That crispy fish, that savory tartar sauce, that melty cheese, that pillowy bun. Yeah, you get it. Every time. And if you love the filet of fish right now you can catch two of the classics you love for just $6. Limited time only. Price and participation may vary. Cannot be combined with any other offer. Single item at regular price. Ba-da-ba-ba-ba. Everybody, JJ Cooper, Kyle Glazer here, another Baseball America podcast, uh, an end of the minor league season podcast, and the end of the major league season. What am I talking about? This week, this year, all the planets align, it all syncs up together because of the late start to the minor league season. We have our, as we record this today, we have our final playoff game of the minor league season tonight Bowling Green versus Greensboro for the high A East title. We also have the final week of the major league season this week, as we still have, especially I would say in the American League, a fascinating wild card race uh, still to be determined that could go in a lot of different directions. So we have a lot of great baseball coming up. We have the postseason coming up in Major League Baseball, which obviously is one of the things that if you're listening to this podcast and you don't get excited about the Major League postseason, then I'd love to have a conversation with you. I'd love to kind of understand that Venn diagram of, oh, I love baseball, but you know, just don't really care about the World Series, whatever. So we got a lot of stuff coming up, but Kyle, the thing we want to talk about today is piece that you have up at baseballamerica.com. We wanted to look now that the minor league season is effectively over. It's over at everything except for we have five games left at the AAA level. And we were long to look at kind of there were a lot of rules changes this year and a lot of them made some impact. Some didn't, some maybe tweaked, but we, you kind of, you, you talk to major league baseball officials, you talk to managers who coached in these leagues to kind of get an understanding of how everything worked here in 2021. So Kyle, glad to have you here on the podcast. Glad to have this conversation, but I'll start with the simplest question because I'll ask the question that, we get often from fans, which is, Kyle, why are they doing this? Why can't they just, I'll, I'll, I'll go all Twitter here for you and go, why can't they just leave this great game of baseball alone? Why are they having to mess with these rules? So why is that, Kyle? Sure thing. The biggest thing is we have to keep in mind Major League Baseball at its core is an entertainment product. And right now, the average time of a nine-inning game is three hours and 10 minutes. That's the longest in Major League Baseball history. And you don't have to go back to the 70s or 80s to find a time where it was significantly shorter. In 2010, the average time of a nine-inning game was two hours and 50 minutes, a full 20 minutes shorter. The number keeps going up, not in the right direction. And as games are getting longer... We're having less and less action than ever before. It was talked about a lot earlier this season, and that's partially what led to the crackdown on the use of foreign substances. But even with an increase in offense after that crackdown, we still are at the highest strikeout rate in a full season in Major League history this year. We're still at the lowest batting average since the mound was lowered after the 1968 season. So you have this combination of less action in longer games. That's just not a very sustainable formula moving forward as an entertainment product. So Major League Baseball is instituting a couple of different rules in the minor leagues 
just to test out some things that could increase the pace of play or could potentially increase offense. And I do think that given where the game is today, just as someone who wants to see the game thrive long-term, finding ways to shorten games and increase offense, I think objectively is better because people talk about, oh, well, baseball was best in the olden days without all these rules. Well, baseball in the olden days was significantly shorter and did have significantly more offense than it does this year. So trying to get that balance back, I do think is important and a good thing. Uh, We're going to talk about some of the things they tried this year, some of which had an effect, some of which actually ended up having no effect at all, surprisingly. So that's the goal here is shortening games, getting more offense. And really that's what brings baseball back to what it was. Another thing I would just add to that when you say, well, you know, when I asked the question myself, I said, well, why are they doing these changes? This has always been part of minor league baseball. Um, If you go back, I always love to use this example, but the idea for the designated hitter is not something that popped up into the eye of an American league president or American league owner in the early seventies. And they said, okay, let's do this. It was something that had been implemented and had been successful in the minor leagues before that. Now, also, if someone wants to chime in, is everyone seems to hate uh, with the extra, you know, putting a runner on second base that had been trialed in the minors. The seven inning doubleheaders first was something that has long been a part of the minors. So, absolutely, there are things that are done in the minors. It is, if you think as we go through some of these rules, could some of these things come to the majors? Absolutely, positively. That's why they trial these rules. That's why they want to workshop them, figure them out. But if something of this works, it has a chance to move up the ladder to the majors, as we have seen in many other cases over the years in the past. But so, Kyle, with that being the case, probably should start with the things that, in hindsight, worked as MLB kind of hoped or thought it would work this year. So, What is something, again, they did these different rules at different levels. So explain a rule that did what MLB hoped it would do by implementing. The biggest one is the implementation of the pitch clock in the low A West. Now we've had pitch clocks in double A and triple A in recent years, but in low A West, it was a little bit less time on the clock with runners on base. And the way it was enforced was markedly different. In double A and triple A, a pitcher could just reset the clock by stepping off the mound and they could do that as many times as they wanted. In low A West, pitchers couldn't do that. If they stepped off the mound, it counted against their limit of two pickoffs per plate appearance, which is another rule change we'll get into that had an effect. So with the pitch clocks this year, this was probably the most successful rules change in terms of enacting a rule and getting the desired result that Major League Baseball put in place at any level of the minors this year. As Jason Stark at The Athletic first reported, and we went ahead and updated the information here through the end of the season, the average time of a nine-inning game in the low A West once the pitch clock was implemented dropped by 21 minutes from three hours and two minutes to two hours and 41 minutes. And I was at a number of these games throughout the year. The pace was significantly better. It made for a lot more action. And one of the things that corresponded with the implementation of the pitch clock, they put it in in the middle of the season. They started enforcing it on June 8th, which was exactly five weeks into the season. And one of the things we saw is after they implemented the pitch clock, you had games taking 21 minutes less on average, nine inning games, But you also had a spike in offense. You had more hits per game, more runs per game, more home runs per game, and higher batting average, higher on base percentage, higher slugging percentage. 
fewer walks, fewer strikeouts. So more action, less things that tend to slow the game down a little bit, strikeouts and walks. So on the whole, the pitch clock was far and away the most successful of the rules changes. When again, if your goal is let's shorten games and increase offense, this did it and this did it dramatically. I have a couple of things I want to add with that. As you said, they, they have eliminated a lot of the loopholes, the stepping off, they make sure that batters stay in the box better than they did under previous iterations we've seen in double AA, A, triple A, and all that. So that's one. I think the more important part, though, is, is that they really did enforce it. They enforced this rule. And so by, what I mean by that is, is if you exceeded the time, they actually was a consequence. And we've seen many a time in double A AA and triple A, the first year they implemented this, there were consequences. Well, it got to a point where if you weren't just as a pitcher blatantly standing there, not doing anything, when it got to zero, they were just going to let it go. And if, again, there's also in the loopholes, like you could stand there set for as long as you wanted. There's all these things. So if they really do implement this, it does make a big difference. The thing I will say with that also that I'll add is I get it. You have to put a rule in for these things because, and I don't, I'm not knocking players when I say this, when a player is on the field, players are selfish. And what I mean by that is we are now in a game where we are a full generation of players who have been taught, like there, it, this is something that was not taught 30 years ago, but have been taught, slow the game down. If you're not in the right headspace as a pitcher, Take a little more time. It's your time on the mound. You dictate the pace. We have hitters who have been taught, if the pitchers dictate the pace, you dictate the pace. And so you have this kind of almost sometimes never-ending battle to slow things down. Well, you can fix that by putting in consequences. And again, there is, I, I would agree with you, short of putting it in, there is no, nothing else that will do like this. And for the purest out there, who say baseball doesn't have a clock. The rule book for many a year has said they're not doing this. They're not enforcing this. 12 seconds. The rule is 12 seconds. And by the way, no one's even talking about actually enforcing that rule, but that's what the rule says in the MLB rule book right now on how quickly you should pitch. Two other parts with that though, because I think this is a very important one. One is you hear questions about, well, that's going to raise the risk of injury. Because as a pitcher, if you have less time to recover between pitches, then you raise your risk of injury. And I'm not saying there are studies that show that that is a possibility, but there are two possible responses to that. One of which is don't throw every pitch at 100%, which is something that used to be true in baseball. And the other is, is that taken to its extreme, I also promise you, that if a pitcher waited a minute between pitches, it would be better for their health. You're all about here about dividing a line, picking a line of where you say, and again, the pace of the game is undoubtedly better if you are, if this is enforced, which again, you were in a fortunate position. I only got to watch it on TV. You were there in person seeing them. It was clear those games played quicker, Kyle. Absolutely. I was at a lot of games, a couple that stick out in my mind at Ranch Cucamonga going 228, 224. There are a lot of games in that vein this year. And 
Like anything else, enforcement matters. And as you mentioned, there is a rule in the Major League Rulebook right now that says pitchers have X number of seconds to deliver a ball with no one on base. No one enforces that. That is extraordinarily clear. Pick whatever you want. If there's no enforcement of a rule or a law, then no one really abides by it. So there's no question enforcement's a key part of this, but we did see that it was possible on a smaller scale. Again, there's only eight teams in low A West as opposed to 30 as there are in Major League Baseball. And it's going to be a much, much bigger task to ensure that every single Major League umpire is on top of it and enforcing it. If it does come to the major leagues, I need to point that out. It has yeah. not been decided that it will. There's no guarantee it will, but all the indications are there is a lot of backing for it to eventually get to the major leagues. Players, managers, people who have actually experienced it, and, and front office officials who are coming to watch the games as well, everyone's kind of on board. And I think eventually the group of people who are not on board, which is mostly the Major League Baseball Players Association, at a certain point, their membership is going to skew so heavily to people who have had experience with the pitch clock in the minors that their objections are going to be softened as well. We'll go with that. We're there. I mean, you, this, is, this was implemented at the upper levels of the minors far enough ago that if you are, I'm not saying everyone, but Francisco Lindor, players of that generation, basically were in AAA with the pitch clock. You have to be effectively have cleared out of the minors by tr- Clayton Kershaw never dealt with a pitch clock in the minors. Justin but, Verlander, Max Scherzer. Right. Times those older guys are the veterans who sure. really hold the most weight in the room in these discussions. So that's why I, what I I'm saying is this, but it's 2015. So we are talking now, it has been a gener. you know, we are now, it is a dwindling generation of players who never had a pitch clock in the minors. Agreed. And I, I think it will reach a critical mass at some point because clearly it's not there yet. But I do think we will reach a certain point where after, as you mentioned, the Verlanders, Scherzers, Kershaws retire, really that last wave of guys who never pitch with a pitch clock at any point in the minor leagues, once they age out, I do think there's a very strong possibility that some of the opposition will be softened, just given the overwhelming support from pretty much everyone else involved. And again, looking at the game, how it was even 10 years ago, again, we're not talking about the 70s here for the long-term health of Major League Baseball, shorter games, more action as an entertainment product is generally the right way to go. So, okay, so that's one of the biggies. But there were some other rules that I feel like what happened in reading your story, expect to see them proliferate. And what, is, what are some other rules that, that seem like they checked their boxes this year? Yeah, one of the biggest ones was the larger bases. So at AAA this year, Major League Baseball took larger bases, uh, 18 inches square, as opposed to traditional bases, 15 inches square. They played with the larger bases for the first half of the season in AAA East. And then they played with the larger bases for the second half of the season in AAA West. So they had half the season in each league, larger bases, smaller bases, alternate times. And even with it just being a half season in each league, they did see an increase in stolen bases. So I wrote a story earlier this year that Major League Baseball right now had a takeoff rate, which is how often runners attempt a stolen base, pretty much near historical lows this year, even though the success rate on stolen bases has actually been rising because teams aren't emphasizing it with their catchers and there's just a lot more emphasis on receiving than necessarily being ready to gun down a guy at second base. So even though it's gotten easier than ever in a lot of ways for major league players to steal bases, they're just not doing it. So they're trying to encourage teams to steal more bases, have more action. 
and larger bases equals a shorter distance between the two bases. So we did see an increase in stolen base success rates because that's ultimately what's going to drive teams' decisions to actually try and steal bases. The stolen base success rates at AAA were between 69 and 72% every year from 2015 to 2019. This year, they've been successful on 76% with five days still left in the AAA season. And on top of that, the idea also was increasing the number of infield hits and also reducing the number of collisions around the bag. And the exact numbers on those were not available at press time. But even just seeing the increased stolen base success rate, that is something that Major League Baseball wanted. And I talked to some managers, a couple who would go on the record, a couple who chose not to, had some conversations with some players, and they just said, yeah, honestly, you didn't even really notice it. It was such a a non-thing. It's like, out of sight, out of mind. So anything that you can implement that has such minimal disruption, but gets positive results, that is something that you would expect to see proliferated. And I do think there is some support for larger bases. I heard from people. So I saw the larger base first time in the Atlantic League in 2019. And I heard from friends of mine in baseball who I would just, and they, you know, could be a little grumpy about some of these things. They said, why do we need a larger bases? And the quick answer I had is, so that at first base, there are less times that a, there's a collision or a spiking because you have more space. And basically everyone, when you hear that, it's like, yeah, that makes sense. Like you, you really don't, I don't think it makes a big difference. I, you know, I do think also the other thing that's happening with the trend about successful stolen base rates is that as teams have become much more sabermetrically aware, they only run in successful situations so it's kind of like a self-perpetuating loop if you say that we're only going to run if we believe that we have an 85 percent chance of being safe well then you're going to run less but you're going to be more successful than you run and i think that's happening in the minors too it may have made it does make a slight difference but we're talking six you know effectively we've cut six inches between first and second because each base is three inches i believe right bigger so so it's a minor but I think the bigger thing is more bigger base equals less collisions of, you know, less feet colliding, especially at first, because now the first baseman has a little bit more room, a little bit more square inches to put up, you know, put their foot while the runner coming down the line. Also, again, it doesn't mean we need to go to the softball double bases that we've all seen in, you know, in rec, uh, you know, at rec fields and all, but it does make a difference. And if it reduces one or two injuries at first base over the course of the year. Is there any, I mean, again, this is not like that the base, the size of the base and the exact design of it has been handed down through the ages of baseball as like some sacrosanct doggy, you know, object that can never be changed. It just seems like a slam dunk to me. I, I don't see any downside of making slightly bigger bases. And Major League Baseball, again, they didn't have the exact numbers of how many fewer collisions occurred, uh, but they did say generally that they did see some pretty significant health and safety benefits. So again, this is something where a lot of people kind of looked at it and there just weren't a lot of drawbacks. They implemented it. The changes were mostly positive and there weren't too many negative effects of it. So ultimately, this was one of the things that was successful in the sense of positive effects, little drawback, and not a whole lot of complaints about it. You mentioned some of the saltier scouts, and understandably, I think a lot of people, a natural reaction is, well, why would we change this? But 
by the end of the year, a lot of people were like, yeah, honestly, it wasn't that big of a difference and some good things happened with it. So why not? People's attitudes change once they actually experienced it. Okay, now we get to another one that did what they expected it to do, but I do think is a little bit more controversial than, than bigger bases, which is pickoff limits. Right, so they tried two different types of pickoff limits in high and low A this year. In high A, it was a step-off rule. A pitcher had to fully disengage with the rubber before attempting pickoff throw. You couldn't do the traditional lefty hanging on his back leg, deciding whether to throw home or throw to first. Pitcher had to completely disengage from the rubber to attempt a pickoff. At low A, they didn't specify that, but you only had two pickoff attempts per plate appearance. And on the third attempt, you had to be successful or it was considered a balk. So what we saw first with the high A step-off rule is the stolen base attempts per game did go up and the success rates in stolen bases went up. So success rate from 2015-2019 was about 68%. This year was just under 76%. So you saw roughly an 8% increase in stolen base success rates. And you mentioned finding the number that teams are comfortable with. That number is generally 75%. So we've seen now with larger bases at AAA and with this highest step-off rule, the success rate goes up above 75, which is kind of a key number. But the biggest thing is it increased the number of stolen pace attempts per game as well. And it did so in a way that was notable, but not crazy. I think one of the concerns was this is going to make stolen bases too easy or too prevalent. The number of stolen bases that increased per game went from about 2.4 to 2.85. So that comes out to just under one additional stolen base attempt every other game. So you're encouraging stolen bases, but it wasn't crazy. It wasn't wild. So in the sense of, did we see number of stolen base attempts increase? Did we see success rates increase with the step-off rule? The answer is yes. If you go down to the pickoff limit, and this is an important one that ties back into the pitch clock, we saw the increases be even larger. We saw successful stolen base percentage rates jump 9%. And then we also saw the attempts go up from about 2.4 to 3.2. So now you're approaching one additional stolen base attempt per game. So on the one hand, both were successful. Limiting pitchers to two pickoff attempts per plate appearance in general resulted in higher success rates for runners and more attempts per game than the step-off rule. And where the low A rule, where you're limited to two pickoff attempts, you can still hang on the rubber, do whatever you want, but you've only have two of them. That one's important because it ties back into the pitch clocks, where if you step off, you lose one of your pickoff attempts. So ultimately, the more effective one in terms of encouraging teams to run and resulting in higher stolen base success rates, it was the pickoff limits over the step off rule, which dovetails nicely because in order to really have an effective pitch clock, you kind of need this pickoff limit in place as the penalty for a pitcher who keeps stepping off the mound over and over again to reset the pitch clock. The other thing with that is, is that I, I think, again, having seen both these rules in action in 2019, the Atlantic League, two other things I would say that happened with this. One, it does make pitchers focus on being quicker to the plate, which, let's be clear, as a fan, if you're at a game – a pitcher focusing on being quick to the plate is a, again, we go back to the entertainment product. If the next person who tells me that what they come to a baseball game for is to watch a pitcher throw over four times to first base to try to keep a base runner close, 
I, again, maybe if it's Ricky Henderson, you know, in a key situation or something like that, I could see it being kind of dramatic. Generally, it's something where it just feels like the game has crawled to a stop. That, again, there's a logical entertainment perspective to this as well. And if it does lead to more stolen bases, more stolen bases are more action. So, um, you know, I, I thought it was interesting your story also. You made the point. One thing about this, though, is, is that this does feel to me like a change that if you are the step-off rule, the pickoff limit rule is one that you can do all the way through the minors and say the majors are still doing the old rules. We have the pickoff rule, limit rule in the minors, no big deal. You can't have, to me, triple A having the no step-off rule where your pickoff move has to really, especially as a lefty, has to be different and then say, oh, but at the majors, we're still doing the old rules because then you're going to be calling up players who aren't going to be able to work on something that will be very important to what they do in the majors. And we saw that. That was one of the unintended consequences of the step-off rule. I talked to a couple of AA managers and they all brought it up that when they were getting guys from high A, it took them a while to rediscover their old pickoff moves. And ultimately some of them never really did. And now you're talking about it affecting their ability to hold runners at higher levels, their ability to control the run game. It was difficult. This is something that if they implement the step-off rule, they really do need to do it throughout the minor leagues, as opposed to we're doing it at one level, but not the other. Like anything else, if you don't practice doing something for half the season and all of a sudden, Oh, I have to relearn it on the fly it's not always pretty and some guys just never really got it back realistically both of these rules accomplished what major league baseball wanted them to accomplish which one they decide to use moving forward how they do it what the timeline is it's tbd all these are still tbd but just seeing the ultimate results of them was interesting particularly just in the sense of the pickoff limit was more effective at encouraging stolen bases than the step-off rule so that's another rule that effectively did what they expected to do. So Kyle, we're going to dive into this, but before we do, we're going to take a quick break. And we're back. We did have a rule though, that didn't really do provide the impact that they expected is the uh, shifting rule at, at, that they had. Why did that, you know, what, what did you, what did they learn this year? by their shift limitations. Yeah, so this was the one that was the most interesting for me to dive into. The expectation that if we are forcing all four infielders to be on the dirt, no more the third baseman's playing short right field and taking away the hard hit ball from a left-handed batter through the hole between first and second, we're gonna start seeing more hits because some of the balls that are being turned into outs right now with the shift, they go back to being hits. We'll see more action, everything will be great. What actually happened was the short version is no matter which shift restriction they used in the first half, all four infielders had to be in the dirt. Now they could be anywhere in the dirt. You can still shift a guy, a third baseman to the right side of the infield. He just had to be in the dirt. Second half, everyone had to be in the dirt and two infielders were required to be on each side of the second base bag at all times. The short version is it didn't really matter there was no significant difference in batted ball outcomes. What I mean by that is by restricting shifts didn't really actually increase the number of hits. And the main reason for that was over the course of the season, a lot of the balls that would have been out by using a shift 
that became hits were kind of canceled out by the number of balls that would have been hits with a shift, but now became outs with infielders playing straight up. So the left-handed batter, hard hit ball through the right side, that's now a single. Obviously the development major league baseball wanted, but now that little number he hits to where the shortstop would be normally if he wasn't shifted, well, all of a sudden that's an out now. And over the course of the season, it kind of just evened out. So you looked at batting averages on balls in play, you looked at hits per game. There really was not a significant difference between 2018, 2019, when there were no shift restrictions in place and 2021, when there were shift restrictions in place. Again, first half rules, second half rules, it didn't really matter. So really this was a rule designed to increase offense and it didn't do that. And now it becomes an interesting discussion of, okay, I mean, you can easily say, well, we can just kind of can this rule change because it doesn't really do anything. The caveat there is shifting in the minors is much less prevalent than it is in the majors. So there is some thought that while the rules change essentially was ineffective in the minors, it could still be more impactful in the majors because teams shift more, but that's a hypothesis. Major League Baseball is going to continue gathering additional data. The shift restrictions are going to be put in place in the Arizona Fall League. But right now, this is one of those that just didn't really matter that much. It didn't really do anything. And talking to managers, players, I mean, the data versus the personal experiences, it all kind of matched up. And this was something I think a lot of people felt very passionately about. Don't restrict the shift, teach hitters to hit the ball the other way, or, oh, we need the shift because we need to increase offense. And realistically, it was kind of just no big deal. It didn't really do anything, restricting the shift versus not restricting the shift. And this is, to me, one of the important things about these experiments, which I get it that some people are going to hear that and go, see, they should never have done that because it didn't do anything. And I would loop into this. In the Atlantic League, they moved the mound back halfway through the season this year. You're going to have a story coming up about that. And what we found is, I'll give a spoiler alert, there wasn't a whole massive amount of difference. I think it's actually useful that some of these changes get implemented. And what you find is it really doesn't matter. Why? Why is that useful? Because at the end of the day, as these ideas get thrown around, being able to eliminate some of them and say, it's not worth making this change because it really doesn't do anything. Or for instance, moving the mound back or you know, banning shifts. If banning shifts doesn't really change anything, then why go through the, the trouble, the resistance? Because let's be clear. In baseball, you implement anything, and there, there is a contingent that views it as you are violating the sanctity of the game. I will never, ever get over how much pushback there was when the intentional walk went from being throw four pitches out of the zone to being I'm going to signal that you go to first. And you would have thought at the time that basically they were saying – we're going to, this new game, instead of having runs, we're going to have a special bonus, you know, part. If you hit this, if you hit the bull in the outfield, then instead of it being a grand slam, it's worth 12 runs. It, you thought it was a violation of the core of the game, and none of us ever noticed it again because it just wasn't that important. Well, the flip side of that is, okay, it would take a lot of effort to implement banning shifts setting up rules for that. If it doesn't really make a difference and you learn that it doesn't make a difference, and again, I'm not saying they're there yet, but if that's the case, 
great. Don't do that. If you find that moving the mound back doesn't dramatically decrease strikeouts and put more balls in play, then don't do that. That's, that's useful. Like some of these things can succeed in my mind. I don't know what you think, but to my mind, they can succeed by failing because then you say, okay, we will take that and put it in the pile of discarded ideas because it's been tried, it's been tested. And in some cases, it just doesn't make a difference. Yeah, I mean, it's always good to experiment and see how things unfold in real time. We can have all sorts of thought experiments and hypotheses, but you have to test them out. I mean, that's kind of the scientific method. So I found the findings interesting that the hits that were gained evened out with the hits that were taken away by restricting the shift. So we'll see what Major League Baseball does. Again, the big caveat here is shifting in the minors is much less prevalent than in the majors. So they're going to continue to gather additional data. I'm not ready to sit here yet and say that, oh, we're never going to see these again. There's still more data they want to collect. But of all the rules enacted, this was the least effective rules change, just in terms of actually changing something or seeing something go up or down. It just, it really didn't make a difference. Okay, so that's the shift. There's one other, there's a biggie that we have not talked about yet. I would say that the one that, besides pitch clocks, that baseball fans, people in baseball are most interested in. So I'll just pose the, Kyle to you, the question to you this way, Kyle. What about the RoboWumps? What about automated ball strike calling in the low A Southeast this year? Success, failure, or somewhere in between? What we learned about the automated ball strike system in the low A Southeast this year was pretty much the same thing we learned when they implemented it in the Arizona Fall League the system still needs more work. It is not ready for Major League Baseball. It will not be ready for Major League Baseball anytime in the near future. There are still a lot of tweaks that need to be made that are being made. So at the beginning of the year in the low A Southeast, Major League Baseball implemented the system and they set up the strike zone to be the rule book strike zone. And what they found was by doing this at the lowest level of the minors, where it's a lot of guys who throw hard but have absolutely no idea where it's going, is they couldn't really hit that strike zone. So what you started having was a huge upsurge in the number of walks, which led to some extraordinarily long game times, which basically counteracted everything Major League Baseball is trying to do. After receiving feedback from players and managers throughout the league, they adjusted the strike zone in the middle of the season. They lopped three and a half inches off the top of the zone, widened it by two inches on each side of the plate, and changed where pitchers were registered from the front of the plate to the middle to get rid of some of the breaking balls that clipped the front of the plate that were getting called strikes. So basically what we've learned from this is it's still a work in progress. Uh, even after the changes, it was a little better in terms of the walk rate went down. Offense went up slightly, but not a whole lot. I mean, four points of batting average, nine points of slugging percentage, home runs up a little bit. The only thing that really changed is there were just less walks. But what this kind of showed us is you had to change it from a rule book strike zone to an optimal strike zone. Well, that's inherently subjective. And the whole point of the automated ball strike system was having one strike zone as opposed to different umpires and different leagues and different levels having different definitions of it. But in order to keep the game moving, they had to go to this optimal strike zone. So where that then leads into more concerns is the strike zone without an automated ball strike system. The low A strike zone is bigger than the high A strike zone, which is bigger than the double A strike zone, which is bigger than the triple A strike zone, which is bigger than the major league strike zone. So the optimal strike zone for each level is different depending on what level you're at. Now you run into this issue of there's a lot of things to figure out here. 
whether they use the rulebook strike zone, whether they use the optimal strike zone, what an optimal strike zone looks like at each level. From a purely technological standpoint of, hey, did the Hawkeye system track the pitch? Did it get relayed to the home plate umpire in a timely fashion? Yes, that was fine. But now just determining what does the strike zone look like? Do they use the rulebook strike zone? Do they do optimal strike zones? And how much more tweaking do they have to do to this? That's all still to be determined. So I would say that this was the most inconclusive of the rules changes they put in place this year. The only thing we can really conclude from this is it's not ready for the major leagues. And frankly, it's not close. This is something that it's going to take multiple years of tweaking, multiple years of expanding before we see it in the major leagues. A lot of people now, whenever you see umpires blowing calls, Twitter especially blows up. We need robo-umps. We need the automatic strike zone. At this exact point in time, the automatic strike zone is not better than the human umpires in a lot of ways. There's still a lot of subjectivity to it, depending on what level you're at, or there's going to be, I should say. So there's a lot of work that still needs to be done with this, and it's going to be a while before this becomes feasible in Major League Baseball. It's interesting when you say subjectivity, but explain that to me a little bit further, because to me, saying that, again, I, I think that absolutely, if you're using ABS, you take the rulebook strike zone, which is not the strike zone that is actually called in the majors either, and you throw it away. It is not, but when you say subjective, are you saying that those strike zones would be modified? And I think they should. I think the low A strike zone by robo-umps, by setting that, should be bigger than a high A and bigger than a double A and then bigger than, you know, like it should scare skip as they go up the earth. But do you mean that subjective or do you mean like that there's still a, an interpretation part of the I mean that, that by the very definition of defining an optimal strike zone is inherently subjective. That's where, again, the point of this was, hey, here's the strike zone, hit it or you don't, and we're going to make it universal. They found that they couldn't really do that at this level. And seeing whether, okay, can we input the rule book strikes on in the major leagues, or do we have to come up with an optimal strike zone up there too? That, that's going to be a process that's going to take right. a few but, years. I follow you on that. Like the one thing though, I think that, I, that just stands out to me is, is that if they implemented the rule book strikes on the majors tomorrow, it would be a massive change because that's not how umpires call it. Like the only thing to me is, is that we're, again, I do think that they're going to have to tweak it. The thing that I'm going to be watching is right now it's in low A Southeast. They can keep doing this in the low A Southeast and to some extent the AFL and they can keep tweaking and they can keep tweaking. The minute we see this start to spread to class A, all class A, low A, high A, things like that, we're not that far away at that point to me from it coming to the big leagues. And the reason I say that is the minute you do that, you have largely the next wave of major league umpires are currently working in the minors. That's how they get. When you say like, now the turnover is slow. There's not a whole lot of turnover every year, but the minute that you have a large swath of minor league umpires, not calling balls and strikes, but listening to an earpiece and basically relaying it at that point, you have set the ball rolling down the hill, and now you can pick when the ball, you know, maybe the ball is rolling faster, maybe it's rolling slower, but at some point it will arrive in the majors because the whole idea of the minor league umpire development system is, is like the players, they're getting the reps. And right now where it is like, okay, at one step up the ladder, 
these umpires will not call as many because they do still call some games. You know, even in the low A Southeast, they called some games without the robo, the automated ball strike. But once that gets to a more pervasive level, they're not going to have a choice down the road because all of a sudden you're going to have major league umps who've been calling balls and strikes for literally decades. And you're going to be bringing up umpires who had a couple of years of maybe calling balls and strikes in double A AA and triple A having to learn it on the go. That's going to be a different system to me. Again, that's at least my prediction. But I think that's a timeline an arc that we're talking about 10 years, 20 years. Major league baseball wants this to happen faster and it's going to be a while again. All these other rules, as we've talked about, two years, three years, four years, I can see it very possibly being the new reality of Major League Baseball. Not all of them, but some of them. This is one that's just going to take longer. It's going to take longer to tweak it. It's going to take longer for it to proliferate. Determining what strike zone is going to be uploaded. And even, again, Major League Baseball spoke favorably about pitch tracking and getting into the umpire's earpiece. But even a couple of managers, they were a little less bullish on it. And a lot of these talking to managers, farm directors, players, what they said kind of lined up with Major League Baseball's findings. This was one where there was a bit of a disconnect where Major League Baseball said, hey, the technology has worked. We were happy with the pitch tracking. We seem to figure out what strikes and we want to use. Talking to managers and players in the league, it wasn't quite as rosy. Even after they adjusted it, there were still some calls being made that were called strikes that shouldn't have been. So the overall point on this one is there's a lot of work left. Don't expect it to be anytime soon. And I think for a lot of people out there who would say, oh, this will solve everything. It's not ready to do that yet. That's a lot. And there's out the last thing to kind of wrap this up is looking ahead. What do you think happens again? Like it, I, I would be, I think we both would be shocked if in 2022, none of these <laughs> rule changes for anywhere. But what do you think, what do you, what's the next steps? What do you anticipate happening going forward? Yeah, so what's next first and foremost is Major League Baseball is going to be combining all of these rules. Again, they staggered them at different levels throughout the minors this year. They're gonna be combining them all at once in the Arizona Fall League and seeing how they all play out in conjunction with one another when you have a pitch clock and shift restrictions and they're gonna have the automated ball strike system at Salt River Field. So that will be available at least one stadium. So seeing how the game looks when all of them are in play at once, that's going to be the next step. After the season, Major League Baseball officials are going to meet with the competition committee and discuss their findings from the season and kind of make a decision from there about what do we want to implement and where, what should be dropped, what should be expanded, what should be kept. All these decisions have yet to be made. All this is still in process of data collection. And I do want to give Major League Baseball credit. A lot of times... They take a lot of criticism, and a lot of times it's deserved. This process, speaking again with managers, players, you know, stakeholders, they have been very, very receptive and truly genuinely interested in receiving player feedback, coach feedback, minor league operator feedback, everyone involved, because they really do want to get this right. Ultimately, this is about how can we reverse the trends we talked about of longer games with less action, which I think objectively is healthy for the sport. And I think they are approaching it in a genuine and cooperative fashion with the players and the coaches involved. So that's a good thing. Everyone I talked to said that they sought out feedback. They had a lot of conversations with league officials. And once that feedback is fully collected with the data, they'll go to the competition committee and take a look at everything and make a decision about what stays, what goes, what gets expanded. It's going to be interesting to see. And uh, I think it's kind of good timing that we do this right now because we're getting ready for the postseason, and 
when you talk about pace of play, and again, we love baseball. I feel confident in saying there'll probably be some innings coming up uh, over the next uh, month of October where I will think, wait, now how long did that take? And how little happened? And why can't I go to bed? Because I'm really tired and I'm old and all that. But that's coming up. But thank you for all the insight, Kyle. Uh, thank you all, everyone, for the download here of the Baseball America podcast. If you do get a chance, you know, you want to leave a review for us at uh, whatever iTunes or whatever you, wherever you collect your podcast. We do thank you as always. Check out everything at baseballamerica.com. A lot of new stuff coming up. We'll be announcing our minor league player of the year in the very near future. Minor league all-star teams, top 10 list for all the league top 10s for from AAA down to the complexes, as well as a whole lot more coming up at baseballamerica.com. Check it all out. And the new issue we're actually sending to press this week, which has all that content in it as well. For Kyle, I'm JJ. So long, everybody. After the end of a good fight, you deserve an ice-cold reward. Medela is the mark of a fighter. You've earned this rich golden lager with a crisp, refreshing taste. Because you know, the bigger the fight, the better the reward. You put in the hours, the energy, the tough labor. You are a fighter. Medela is your reward. Medela, the mark of a fighter. Drink responsibly. Beer imported by Crown Port, Chicago, Illinois. Everybody in your crew identifies as either Big Mac Burger, McNuggets, or McCrispy Sandwich. But you're the filet fish sandwich all day. That crispy fish, that savory tartar sauce, that melty cheese, that pillowy bun. Yeah, you get it. Every time. And if you love the filet fish right now you can catch two of the classics you love for just $6. Limited time only. Price and participation may vary. Cannot be combined with any other offer. Single item at regular price. Ba-da-ba-ba-ba.